So, did you ever wonder what it's like to live life God's way? I mean, really do a deep dive into it and think, what does God really want me to live like? Well, if you have, that's what we're going to talk about today. And so if you want, you can open to Proverbs chapter 3 in your Bible. As you do that, we're going to give kind of an elongated introduction into Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of constant contrast. You have choices to make. You can live even according to God's way, which the Bible says is wisdom, or the world's way, which is foolish. Jesus said it this way as he wrapped up his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The contrast is clear. The choice is yours on how you want to live. See, God always presents us a choice. He doesn't make us like puppets or like a robot, but he gives us a choice. We can do it God's way or the world's way. In Proverbs, there presents itself two paths. In Proverbs, there always has two paths, and that's the way he writes most of the time. It's your choice to follow, but there's clear consequences given for which way you decide to go. So the question would be, what is a proverb? A proverb is a short saying that expresses a general, practical truth for godly living. It's simple, yet very profound, yet it is not a promise. The author of most of the Proverbs is Solomon. Solomon is called by the Bible the wisest man to ever live. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs and over 1,000 songs. He's the author not only of Proverbs, but of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. He's the third king of Israel after Saul and David, who was his father. He built a huge temple in Jerusalem. But he also had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So let's just say that Solomon had lots of life experiences to draw upon. So what is wisdom? There's lots of good definitions. But for today, and when you read the book of Proverbs, think of it this way. It's the ability to live life with great skill, or simply put, skillful living. In Proverbs chapter 3, we, use the, we see the word heart, and heart is referenced three different times in the first five verses. So we have to ask the question, what is the heart of the matter? This is repeated, the word heart is, because it's important. Back in ancient times, they didn't have an exclamation point to really emphasize something, so they had to repeat things. So what we put into our heart is what we really believe. It's what comes out when life gets challenging, when we're under stress, when anxiety comes bubbling to the surface. It's really, in the end, what we really believe. So as you look at Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 12 verses, and we're going to use them in couplets. So we're going to use two at a time because... The two verses go together throughout the first 12 verses here. So verses 1 and 2, they say, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Solomon begins this out by saying, My son. 
my son is a very personal way of addressing this. It's very intimate. So he wants to grab your attention. He cares about the reader. Then he says, do not forget. And when I first read the first verse here, I thought, man, that's just kind of a throwaway verse. You know, it's poetry. It really doesn't matter. But then I started thinking. In many ways, it's like a good mystery. And I'm, I'm all in on a good mystery. And a mystery, every little clue matters. And therefore, it leads you to the whodunit at the end. The Bible is even more so. There's no throwaway words or verses or phrases. And so I started thinking about this. I started meditating on the words, do not forget. And that really becomes the essence of the whole passage, is Solomon wants to make sure that you do not forget what he's going to say. That's why we should read God's word daily. Just because you read it once or hear about something once in church does not seal it in your mind or your heart. We have to make sure we don't forget, and the only way not to forget is by constant repetition. The teachings of God must be a priority. We must think about God's word and put it into our heart. By putting something in our heart, it changes our thought process. It changes our relationships. It changes our heart. When I was a wee little lad, my mom used to put, used to make us sit down every day for 15 minutes and memorize scripture. And a few years ago, my mom apologized, said, I'm sorry for making you do that. She felt guilty. And I said, Mom, you should never feel guilty for that. In fact, I thought in the back of my mind, you probably should have made it 30 minutes a day. Because it's so much easier to memorize scripture as a wee little lad than it is when you're older. In verse 2, I'm not really a fan of the NIV translation because it uses the word prosperity and we get the wrong idea of the word prosperity. I like to focus more on the phrase length of days. It's one of my favorite little phrases in the section we're looking at. It means that I wish this moment would never end. I mean, we've all had moments like that before, and that's what we're talking about here. That when we fear the Lord and follow his commands, the more of these moments we create for ourselves. These are the moments we put in the scrapbook of our memories, those mountain peak experiences, those days that literally make life worth living. As we look at verses 3 and 4, it says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you'll find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. This is the second place we see the word heart. It says, write them on the tablet of your heart. Today we think of a tablet as like an iPad or something that you kind of scribble on, and that's fine. But back in ancient times, a tablet was like stone. So when you had to actually inscribe it really hard, and it took a lot of work to put it in the tablet. And what he's talking about here, the tablet of our heart, is it takes some work. It takes some effort. It takes some inscription. We use these words, kindness and truth. And we think we know what kindness and truth are. But appearances are not everything. Brian Clark explains the word kindness this way. He says the word kindness is a word that means love, it means commitment, it means that I will be there for you, I will rescue you, I will show favor to you. It is used to God, 
describing God's commitment to those in a covenant relationship with him. In other words, I will be there for you no matter what you go through. That's my covenant with you. The word truth is very similar. It's the idea of trust and faithfulness. These two words together is the idea that God will not leave you. But he is there for you. He loves you. He will protect you. He made a covenant and he will not break it. This is how we build community, which is the the word peace refers to in verse 2. In verse 2, it talks about peace. And that word peace in Hebrew means, it's, it's the word shalom. And shalom is the idea of mutual flourishing. Not just that I will flourish by myself, but we will flourish together as community. And as a little segue, we're going to talk a little bit about that more next week. But it's the idea of completeness and harmony and prosperity and tranquility. It's actually God's vision for the world when he first created the world in the Garden of Eden. In verse 4, this verse makes me think of how Jesus was described as a boy. So you look at verse 4, it says, So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is about age 12, when Luke says Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. If you live with the type of kindness and truth in verse 3, then this is the result. You find favor with God. And if you are a parent or you're a grandparent and you want something to pray over your children or grandchildren, this is a great thing to pray. Pray that your child or grandchild would grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Because really, that's what we all desire. We're going to skip verses 5 and 6, and we're going to conclude with those in just a little bit. Verses 7 and 8 say, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Romans chapter 12 says it this way, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. In Proverbs chapter 16 it says, pride goes before the fall. We we make ourselves out to be God. We choose the world's path and destruction becomes the result. I see so many people unhappy today and most have gone their own way. They refuse to go God's way. When we are wise in our own eyes, we believe we know more than God. We believe we can do whatever we want and there are no consequences. We get seduced by the world and we believe that the world's way is more enticing and will deliver what our, real, what our hearts want. And Proverbs chapter 14 says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The key phrase in that is, seems right. We see this all the time in our world today. But this problem is thousands and thousands of years old. The heart of the man is still the same. We battle pride, which in essence is a battle between who is going to run my life, who is God. Am I God, or am I going to allow God to be God? The phrase, fear the Lord, is an interesting phrase. It really means God knows. So if you would just reread that verse above, it says, where'd it go? It says, God knows, so turn away from evil. 
That'd be a really good way of thinking about it. You cannot hide things from God. You can hide things from me. I'm easy. Probably hide things from your pastor or your youth pastor or your teacher or your banker or your friends or your family. But you can never hide things from God. God knows. And therefore, consequences will occur. The word turn away from evil is the warning that you will be found out. If you fear God and if you shun evil, you will not constantly be looking over your shoulder, wondering who is going to find out, who is going to catch me. It's such a better way to live life. So it becomes healing and refreshing to your mind and spirit. Anxiety decreases. Mental health is better. And if you turn away from evil, you never have to hide anything or be ashamed of anything. Beginning in verses 9 and 10, we're going to go up a level. So this becomes Christianity 501. Because there's some really tough things we have to tackle in Scripture. And this is part of it. It says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Again, throughout Proverbs, we can see how to live either with wisdom or as the fool. And how we deal with our money is part of that. And how we deal with our money is really hard. The more bills, the more responsibility you have, the harder it gets. Especially in economic times like we're facing. The world says you work for your money, keep it for you. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. And if we're honest in our heart of hearts, we want to say, I've worked hard for my money, and it's mine. I will determine what to do with my money. I mean, that's the world's way. Verse 9 begins with the word honor. The word honor here has to do with weight. So the idea is to give someone proper respect. We give proper respect to God by giving to God in a very generous way. The word there where it says, um, give first of all your produce, also interpreted as first fruits, is just what it sounds like. Giving to God is a priority, not just an afterthought. Giving generously to God because I trust him. He will meet my needs. It's not because God needs my money. In fact, the psalmist says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but it's because God wants my heart. How can I say God has my heart, but not my wallet? Jesus says it this way in Matthew, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, this is a thousands of year problem, not just a recent one. Money, what we do with it is a test of the heart. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what's more important, money or God? The idea in verse 10 is that if we give generously to God and others, that God will be generous to you. God's blessing many times are halted by our greed. Vats overflowing is the idea that our needs will be met, not that we become independently wealthy. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes, if we have food for today and a roof over our head, we should be content. I'm the first to admit these are tough verses for me, that being generous is against how I am wired. 
It can be tough, but if money is God's and I'm trusting in Him, then a generous heart will be an overflow of that commitment. Verses 11 and 12 say, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. These are also difficult verses to digest. The discipline of the Lord. He disciplines us because He loves us. He places rules on life because He loves us. God wants what's best for us. Just like an earthly parent or teacher or coach disciplines us to make us accountable and better. So think of it this way. When my, when my grandsons turned four this year, I gave him a Spider-Man bicycle. And so the Spider-Man bicycle is, yeah, you can see him up there with it. It's really cool and awesome. He's happy about it. But his dad has rules on when and where he can ride his bicycle. So his dad will walk the sidewalk and he'll ride, the, ride his bicycle either in front of him a little bit or behind him, but he'll ride on the sidewalk with him. His dad places rules on where he can ride his bicycle, not because his dad is mean, but because his dad loves him. Much the same way God places rules on what we can and cannot do because he loves us and knows what's best for us. So think of it this way. One day, if this little guy says, man, you know what, I'm going to break loose. And he gets on his bicycle without his dad's permission and just goes out. He's in the middle of the street. He's riding away. And his dad realizes, oh my goodness, he's gone. And he sprints after him. And right before he gets hit by a car, he grabs him and pulls him out. Now, do you think it would be loving for him to say, you know what, just got to be more careful, man. Or would it be more loving for him to discipline him? And think of the word discipline as teach. And so he's got to teach him that there was something that he did wrong. He disobeyed. And so there must be a consequence for that. And that consequence might be taking away the bike for a week or a month or whatever seems fair. But the verse says, whom God loves, he reproves. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, it says it this way. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, there is a benefit to being disciplined. First, it is for our own good. But next it says we share his holiness. Holiness means set apart. We become more godlike because of this process. And we get the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness is justice. So it's God taking you down this path of life and continuing to teach you what is right in order to become more Christ-like. So in sum, God's discipline is always for our good and done perfectly and fairly and justly. We must humble ourselves to his discipline and be attentive to it. God never gives up on us and is continuing his ways to shape and change us to be more like Jesus. One last remark about God's discipline is that not just a response to something we have done, but it's also preparing us for something we'll go through later. For example, David, who was Solomon's father, 
will be sent, put in the wilderness for 10 years, going through all kinds of issues, hiding in caves, hiding from spears, in order to prepare him to be a great king of Israel. So now we're going to backtrack and wrap it up as we look at verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. For you NIVers, I'm sorry, I learned it in the King James Version. That's what all we had when I was a little boy. But I put these verses last because these are my life verses. My mom put three by five cards up in our bathroom, and these were the verses that I memorized. And ever since I memorized it, I've said it thousands of times in my life. Verse 5 is the third part, or the third place we see the word heart. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Trust means total vulnerability. God, I trust you. Do whatever you want with my life. I have a post-it note on the mirror of my bathroom. It just has two words on it. Trust God. That's really what it's all about. When I lean on my own understanding, I'm like the fool. I think I know it all. I act as my own God. I believe there's no consequences to my actions. The phrase acknowledge him means to walk with him, walk with God, know God personally. This is our goal, have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then the phrase direct your path means make your path straight or smooth or easy to travel. Not that you will have no problems, but the path to reach God and all our heart's desires in reaching God is made smooth to get to. So let's finish this discussion by giving you a life example of trust. We could talk about trust and the theology of it, and we could talk about trust and what the definition is, but to me, trust is really where rubber meets the road. Because this is the actuality of our Christian life. Do we trust God or not? And so, this is an example from my life. And I don't know about your spiritual journey, but mine's full of potholes. And I wish I could stand up here today and just say, you know what? It's been smooth without any doubt. But I can't say that. And I, I really believe that most of you probably can't say that either. But I remember distinctly there was a time that I was really going through stress and struggles, much like many of you have and maybe going through today. And I thought to myself, God, where are you? God, are you real? Is everything I've ever believed my whole life, is it true? Or have I been fooled into thinking something that's not true? Maybe I'm the only one that's ever thought that before. But that was real. And I was having this conversation. And I was walking. And tears started coming down my face. Because I was in this spiritual warfare. Who was going to win? And I could feel it. And all of a sudden, I started to sing a song. And I'm not going to sing it for you today because that would be awful. But these were the words. The words were, God, you are my God. And I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning and learn to walk in your ways. And step by step you'll lead me. And I'll follow you all of my days. 
And this was my declaration of trust in God. That even though circumstances were not going to change, that I was going to trust God. And to me, that's our definition of trust. That at some point, we've got to say, God, you're my deliverer. You're my rock. You're my refuge. Trust goes back to the first word we talked about today. And that word is forget. We forget who God is. We forget what God has done for us. We forget how deeply God loves us. We forget that God has a plan and a purpose for each person. We forget that God calls you his masterpiece. That of all of God's creation, he celebrates you. He doesn't celebrate the stars and the galaxies and the moons and the animals and the plants. He celebrates you. And if we would just remember that God calls us his masterpiece, it would be so much easier to trust him. For some of you this morning, you may know about God. But do you actually trust God? By trusting God, we fully become alive spiritually. When the tough times come, we have a rock to lean on. We only have one shot at life, one opportunity to live life with wisdom. So who will you trust? Will you do it God's way or the world's way? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Proverbs that we see that there's two paths to take. We can either do it your way or the world's way. And Father, I just pray that each person here this morning would choose your way, that we would trust you and we'd have an intimate relationship with you. Thank you so much, Lord, for being here with us each step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.